0: Amen, amen. Well, let's get our Bibles open to John uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with uh, copies of God's Word. Uh, one other just kind of quick uh, shout out while we're here. I saw Daniel and Judith Henderson uh, in the building. Are they, are they here? Could they stand up? I can hardly see anything right now. Hopefully, they weren't just at the night. Nu- there we are. Dana, these are our missionaries in, uh, serving in Quebec, uh, publishing... Christ-centered resources, and uh, so we pray for them uh, from time to time. As as we just prayed for Brad Morris, who's also serving uh, in Quebec, so you have an opportunity to actually uh, put a um, uh, put a ha- a hand in their hand and to encourage them and uh, hear about how God is working uh, through their uh, through their uh, ministry. So so glad to have you guys uh, here with us uh, today. Uh, John chapter one, and um, and we're going to be looking at verses fourteen uh, through eighteen. Uh, this past week, Lince and I got invited to, uh, to attend a, a performance of the Nutcracker put on by the National Ballet of Canada. And uh, this was a real first for me. I've had no experience with, uh, with ballets. I had no idea how the Nutcracker works. And so I was just learning a lot through the, through the whole process. And I guess there's this tradition... Uh, And and as the Nutcracker is performed all over the world, that this one particular kind of side part, this very small, insignificant role, they often bring in people who aren't dancers at all, but who are well known for some other reason. And they're the cannon dolls. In in the middle of the scene where the Nutcracker comes to life and starts dancing around, and there's a a war uh, with, with the Mouse King. these. These clown characters come out and fire a cannon into the audience. And those clown characters are normally played by someone who's, who's not a dancer. And the night we were there, it was like the editor of the Toronto Star. I had, never, I had never heard of them. But the night after we were there was kind of big news. Because the clown dolls, were, or the cannon dolls, were being played by Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. And uh, so, this is how we normally uh, associate them, you know, wearing the, wear the blue and white uniform. But on that particular night this week, they were dressed up as clowns firing a cannon into the audience. Now, why was this considered news? Why was this noteworthy? Well, it was kind of shocking and surprising to see someone who you know for, for, for being associated with one thing and then all of a sudden being found in a different, unique, environment, and, and it's, it would be kind of surprising to see a hockey player at the ballet, let alone in the ballet, and, and yet that's what, that's what these two gentlemen did, and it caught a lot of attention, it brought a lot of publicity to, uh, to the event, and why? Because there's just such a transition taking place, you know, from the arena to the, to the theater, but loved ones when we come to John chapter 1 and when we think about Christmas think about the transition that we are contemplating and reflecting on at this season. We're not just talking about a move from Scotia Bank Arena to the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts. We're talking about a transition from heaven to earth. We're not just talking about athletes pretending to be dancers. We're not talking about just trading in hockey equipment for a, a clown costume. We are talking about God becoming a man. And what we're going to study today, particularly in John chapter 1, verse 14, I mean, the whole meaning of Christmas hinges on, the, on a proper understanding of what this verse is saying. In fact, the whole message of the Bible really hinges on understanding the transition of God becoming a man. The entire belief system of Christianity is founded on the reality that we are about to study right now. So there is a lot at stake. If you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. But if we get this right, if we truly understand what theologians call the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, God becoming a man, then that changes everything. Then that allows us to truly understand how the whole Bible fits together, to truly understand what the meaning of Christmas is, to truly understand what the message and foundation of Christianity is all about. And so we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. But as we've been doing throughout this series, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 18 so that we can put these verses in its proper context. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your living and active word. And we come to you right now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come by the power of your Holy Spirit and we ask you, Lord God, To move in our midst, Lord. To allow this incredible, life-transforming, universe-altering passage of Scripture to speak, Lord, to our hearts. To allow us to truly come to grips with what, what this season is all about. What the Bible is all about. What Christianity is all about, Lord God. That Christ became a man that Christ came and dwelt here among us. So Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if we were to truly understand what John 1.14 is all about. To truly come to grips with that simple yet profound statement, the word became flesh. There are three things that will happen. Three things that will take place in our lives. Lives Here's the first one. When we truly understand the incarnation, we see his glory. We see Jesus' glory. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John is talking about his own experience with Jesus Christ and how he saw with his own eyes the glory of God becoming a man. He begins in verse 14 calling Jesus the word. And This is referring back to what we just read in verse 1, that he's the pre-existent, eternal Son of God. The Word that was with God and the Word that was God, that Word is the Word that became flesh. And when he became flesh, he didn't cease to be the Word. It doesn't say the Word stopped being the Word and became flesh. No, the Word became flesh. God didn't. God didn't stop being, or Jesus didn't stop being God when He became a human being. No, He's 100% God, and 100% human. Uh, Daniel, do you want to come up here for a second? I just want to sh- share with you a quick uh, illustration that I learned from uh, Pastor Robbie Simons down in Oakville. So, this. Come on, right up. Uh, this jacket here represents. Everything that it means to be a human being. Everything that it means to be a human being in terms of, of physicality. Right, right down to having a toenails or little hairs in your nostrils. This is what it means to be human physically. This is what it means to be a human socially and, and psychologically and, and spiritually emotionally, everything about being a human is wrapped up into this jacket. Now, Daniel, the pressure's on right now because this represents being humanity, but you are going to represent full divinity, okay? So don't mess this up, all right? In fact, just do nothing. Just stand there, okay? So this jacket represents humanity, and Daniel is representing full divinity. And so what I want you to do is try to put this jacket on. It's my jacket so it probably won't fit super well because you're a lot more jacked than I am. But anyway, there we go. It fits pretty well. Hey, I'm I'm doing all right, I guess. (laughs) So now Daniel in putting on this jacket did not have to become any less Daniel, did he? And Jesus, the son of God, didn't become any less God in order to become a man. Now the we didn't have to rip off a sleeve or anything like that in order for him to put the jacket on. The jacket is still intact. You have full humanity and full divinity. Don't let that go to your head, okay? Okay, let's thank, let's thank Daniel uh, for, uh, for participating in that. Thanks so much. And hopefully that's, hopefully that's clear to us that Christ is a... When it says the Word became flesh... There was no compromise. There was no subtracting away from, from who he truly was when he became flesh. It says that the word became flesh. And then the next word's very important. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt. Dwelt among us. That, that, that word in its verbal form, skeno, means to live in a particular area. The verbal form means to live somewhere, skeno. But, but skeney means tent. skene is the noun form of that word dwell. If you were speaking in Greek, you, would, you, you, you could use the word dwell as, as, a, as a verb to describe living in a particular place, but then you could also use the word dwell as a noun to describe an object, to describe a tent. Now, when the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek in a, in a translation called the Septuagint, That word dwell in its verbal form and in its noun form is used to describe something very important. It's used to describe the construction of the tabernacle among the people of Israel in the wilderness when they escaped Egypt. Take a look at the screen at at Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 and and 9. God told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell In their midst. That's the verbal form. God wants to live among his people. That's skeno. But then it says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle or the temple. That's skene. That's the noun form. And so John is intentionally using the language of the tabernacle. So one way to sort of translate John chapter 1 verse 14 would be, The word became flesh and tented among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, the tabernacle was God's physical symbolic presence among his chosen people. And, and that was God's desire. God's desire has always been to dwell, to, to, to skeno among all of his people. I mean, going back to the Garden of Eden. In the book of Genesis, God is walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 21, and God says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The Skeno is with man. God has always wanted to dwell among his people. And then in the middle of the Bible, in, this, in, in the story of the Exodus, you have this expressed desire. And then that story gets, and then. God's dwelling place transitions from the tabernacle to the temple. God wants to dwell among his people. And so John is pointing back to the days of Moses and God's desire to dwell in a tabernacle. Looking back at verse 14 though, it it gets even more interesting. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory, and here's the amazing thing, is the tabernacle was the epicenter of the glory of God. After they followed the pattern of the tabernacle, Exodus 20, 25, when you get to Exodus 40, the tabernacle's all finished, it's all completed, they put it together, and then what happens? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Exodus 40 says that the glory of God came down and filled the tabernacle, filled the, te- filled the tent where God's symbolic presence was among his people. Later on in the book of Kings, in the book of Chronicles, it talks about the, the transition between the tent to, a, to an actual temple. And the same thing happened when the temple was opened in the days of Solomon. The cloud came and the glory of God filled The temple. And so Jesus Christ is like that tabernacle. He has come to dwell and he has come to show the glory of God. And John says, we have seen his glory. John himself experienced the glory of God. Let me take you to a place where he he saw Christ's glory firsthand. Turn to the book of Luke chapter 9. Luke is the book of the Bible right before the gospel of John. So just turn to the book of Luke chapter 9 and find verse 28. Jesus revealed his glory in a number of different ways, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his compassion. All of these things manifested his glory, but John had this unique opportunity to see Christ's glory in such a special way. Look at John chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days later, after these things, he took with him Peter and, notice, and John. Peter and John, this is John, this is John who wrote the book of John, being written about in the book of Luke. Peter and John and James and went on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, notice this, they saw his glory. Jesus showed them what was was being covered, what was underneath the jacket of humanity that Christ had put on. As the word had become flesh, Jesus revealed his pre-existent glory. Look at verse 33, and the men were, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three, what does he want to make? Three tents, three skanes, three dwelling places. He wants to make a, a, a tent like the tabernacle. He says, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, I love that part. You know, the disciples are, you know, having a meal afterwards, like, Peter, remember that time on the mountain and you were talking about the tent? Why did he say that? He's like, I don't know why I said that. I don't know what I said (laughs) Verse 34, and as he was saying these things, notice this, a cloud came, the cloud of the glory of God, the cloud that filled the tabernacle, the cloud that filled the temple. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Why were they afraid? Because that's the very presence of God. The the manifest reality of all that God is and all of his beauty and all of his holiness. Of course they were afraid. Then it says, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So going back now to John chapter 1 verse 14, Jesus said, we, we have seen his Glory John was there on that mountain he saw his glory and remember the voice that he heard God said this is my son and look at what John writes in verse 14 we have seen we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father the glory of the son, the picture of who the Word is is getting so much clearer here in this passage. He was this mysterious being in verse one he 's the Word and he was with God and he was God, and then you get to verse five and he 's the light, but now in verse fourteen it's okay, the Word became flesh, so we get that now we 're being told that the Word is the son is the son of the Father, describing the first two persons of Of the Trinity. John says that he is the only son. The Greek word there is monogeneo, and in the King James it's translated only begotten Son. That he is the, the unique, there's no one like him. He is the only Son of the Father, or from the Father. They had seen his glory. And he became flesh and he's filled with grace and truth. More about grace and truth later. But notice this. He, he came to us. The word became flesh. And on that first, uh, that first Christmas when, when, when the advent of, of, of Christ, when, when Christ first appeared, the word had, had become flesh. At that time you're just talking about maybe 8 to 10 pounds of flesh. It, it wasn't a lot of flesh at that point. But he would, he would grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. The word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. To think. There's no other religion, no other philosophy has anything like this. Everyone is, every other religion is about reaching up to God. We're here. We have God coming down to us. This is why Christians above all other people should have, no, have have no interest in any form of racism or prejudice or thinking that you're better than someone, for whatever reason, your, your education or your, your politics or your appearance or whatever it may be. because we understand God came down to us. And so how dare we ever look down on someone else? I mean, there's some religions, they have a whole caste system set up where certain people aren't supposed to even associate with other people. What is with that? We, sir, of course, we can break through any boundary. Of course, we can humble ourselves and look any other human being in the eye because we understand that God came to dwell among us. And we have seen his glory. God wants to manifest all that he is. He wants to show who he is. That's why Christ came. That we would see his glory. Verse 15. We studied this passage a number of weeks ago. When we were talking about John the Baptist. In John chapter 1 verse 6 to 8. But we'll read the verse. It says John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. John, although he was born first, he talks about Jesus being older than him. Because he knew that Jesus was the pre-existent son of God. Now look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So jot this down secondly. We receive from his fullness. We receive from his fullness. It's his fullness. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And we have received from that fullness. We often try to uh, teach people that Christmas is about giving, not receiving. Right? And uh, yesterday I took three different individual trips to the dollar store with three of our older sons. And walking around the dollar store and finding a gift for each of their brothers and finding a gift for their mother. Why? Because I'm trying to teach them that that Christmas is not just about receiving, it's it's about giving. But is it, really? Loved ones, Christmas is not about giving. Christmas is about receiving. And we have received from His fullness. And so it is right and good for me to teach my children about giving and the importance of of giving to their brothers and giving to their mother. But if I only ever teach them that it's about giving, then I'm not teaching them what Christmas is all about. It's not about giving. Christmas is about receiving. And the only reason why we do the giving on Christmas is because Christ has given to us. And as we have received this incredible gift from the fullness of who God is... That's out of the overflow of our receiving then comes the giving. So don't let everyone tell you that Christmas is about about giving, not receiving. That's not true. Christmas is first and foremost about receiving. And we have received this incredible gift given to us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's from his fullness, not like the other gods who who need to be fed or clothed or who are desperate for our worship. God doesn't have a a, a TED-sized vacuum in his heart that needs to be fulfilled by me giving something to him. No, he's full. He needs nothing but gives everything. And so we receive from his fullness. And this is what we receive. It says, from his fullness we, all, we have all received grace upon grace. The NIV translates it, one blessing after another. The ESV a footnote uh, adds an alternative translation, not just grace upon grace, but grace in the place of grace. That, that God is just continually, he gives us grace and then more grace and then more grace. And that's going to be very, very important because in the next verse he's going to talk about Moses. And sometimes the way people put the Bible together in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we get it terribly wrong. Sometimes we think that in the Old Testament, God was you know, angry and vindictive and and, and, and really wanting to punish people, and then all of a sudden in the New Testament, God's now friendly and merciful and gracious and loving. Have you ever heard that kind of teaching? That is wrong. We've received from his fullness grace on top of grace, grace in place of grace. Grace upon grace. The God in the Old Testament is gracious and merciful. Just like the God in the the New Testament. Because it's the same God and loved ones. The God in the New Testament is also righteous and a judge and will punish evil. Just like the God in the Old Testament. If If you think that the God in the Old Testament is not gracious, you haven't read the Old Testament. The 40 years in the wilderness wandering and providing manna for the people all the time, even though they're continually accusing him of trying to kill them. And continually longing to go back to the Egypt where he rescued them from. God is gracious and merciful and patient. If you think that the Old Testament God is not gracious, you haven't read the Old Testament. Furthermore, if you think the New Testament God is not a God of judgment and punishment, you haven't read the New Testament. Check out Revelation and 1 Thessalonians, yo. It's the same God. He didn't have a change of heart. He's unchanging. He is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. But the second part of that statement is that He will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice. And so we need to understand rightly how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. It's all grace. He's going to talk about how the law was given. The law was given as a gift of grace. It was, a, it was a, a grace to show us how to live. It was a grace to reveal our sin. And then Christ coming is just grace in place of grace. So look at verse 17 now. In light of that it says, For the law was given through Moses. Moses was the one who gave the law. God gave it to him on Mount Sinai. He thundered it down from the mountain. So that the people could know what is right and what is wrong. So the people could know the character of God. All of this was grace. He had rescued them from Egypt. That was grace. Grace on top of grace. So the the law came through Moses. And then it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God just kept on showing grace as he has all along. He just kept on showing grace. And grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. You see, the law was powerful. The law was a gift of God's grace and the law gave us rules that helped reveal sin. But Christ is a redeemer who doesn't just reveal sin, he removes sin. And it's a grace on top of grace. It was a grace for us to be able to know what was right and wrong and what was sin But now the grace that's layered on top of that grace is that now we have a way of not just knowing our sin, but experiencing the grace that comes from having that sin forgiven. And Christ came and he's described here, this is the first time his name is mentioned, Jesus. And the first time his title is mentioned, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer. And grace and truth comes through him. Christ Christ showed us grace in the way that he offers forgiveness, in the way that he offers patience. And Christ also spoke the truth. And Jesus said it's the truth that sets us free. And because Christ has grace, he spoke the truth. He, He wants us to know and to see and understand our sin. I put a quotation for you in the bottom of your uh, the first page of your handout there from Randy Alcorn. He wrote a really wonderful book called The Grace and Truth Paradox. And this is what Alcorn has to say. He says, Truth is quick to post warning signs and guardrails at the top of the cliff. Yet it fails to empower people to drive safely and neglects to help them when they crash. Grace is quick to post ambulances and paramedics at the bottom of the cliff. But without truth, it fails to post warning signs and build guardrails. In so doing, it encourages the very self-destruction it attempts to heal. Truth without grace crushes people and ceases to be truth. Grace without truth deceives people and ceases to be grace. Truth without grace degenerates into judgmental legalism. Grace without truth degenerates into deceitful tolerance. Grace and truth are both necessary. Neither is sufficient. The answer to the paradox, the grace and truth paradox, is a person. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. The one who is filled with grace and and with truth. See, we, we, off, we so often think either or, yes or no. Are you a grace person or are you a truth person? Is this a church that's about grace or is this a church that's about truth? Well, listen, we're a church that's about Jesus, which means we're about both. And these are, these are not either or things. These are both and. Both are absolutely necessary, but neither of them are sufficient on their own. And Jesus came with grace and with truth. Truth about our sin, who we are, how we've rebelled against God, how we're dead in our sin, how we're children of the devil. All of that is the truth that Christ made known to us. That out of our heart comes all of this evil. But grace offers the opportunity for our hearts to be transformed and for the gospel to change us from the inside out, for our sins to be forgiven. We We didn't receive the law from Moses' fullness. Moses was not full. Moses had a fading glory when he came down from the mountain. He wasn't full. But we have received from Christ's fullness, grace on top of grace, grace and truth. How do these things uh, fit uh, together Uh, Aaron Best is sitting over here somewhere. There he is. And every time I say hello to Aaron Best, sort of in the normal, uh, the normal way that we speak, you know, you always say, "Hey, how you doing?" or "How's it going?" or "How are you?" And without fail, every time I talk to Aaron, he always says, "Say it better than I deserve." Better than I deserve. And uh, Aaron's being so greatly used by the Lord uh, in this church and outside. He's always sharing his faith with people. And I bet you that saying that to strangers really gets a lot of conversations going about the gospel, doesn't it? How are you doing? It's something where we, we always expect someone to say fine or good or okay. But isn't it true that every single time when we think about how we're doing, we're doing better than we deserve? When we think about the truth, what do we deserve in truth in light of our sin? What do we deserve? And... But what have we been given better, better than I deserve? And and that is where truth and grace come together. And that's a way that the one brother in Christ is living that out every day. By just being in the habit of responding that way to that simple, benign, seemingly empty, small talk question. Gets people thinking on a deeper level about truth and grace and how they uh, relate to one another. So what what era are you living in? Are you living in the era of Moses, in in that era of grace? Because because the Pharisees, they got that era all mixed up. The law was supposed to be a means of grace to reveal reveal sin, but the Pharisees tried to use the law as a means of salvation. The only purpose of the law was to show our need for salvation. And are you living your life thinking that you need to earn your way up to God? Well, you're missing the whole point because God has come down to us in grace and in grace. Truth. Are you living a life that's rooted in the grace of God? That's marveling at the fact that God has become a man. We see his glory. We receive from his fullness. And, and thirdly, make note of this. We know his father. We know his father. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the father's side, he has made him known this father that no one has ever seen has been made known by his son who came here to the earth verse 18 says no one has ever seen god in exodus chapter 33 moses is praying to god he's so overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of god that even though the golden calf happened god was still going to go with his people and moses erupts in worship and he prays this bold prayer he says show me your glory god And essentially God says, this is my paraphrase, God says no. God tells him, he graciously tells him the truth and says no man can see me and live. That's why John can say here, no one has ever seen God. Now, the translators of the English Standard Version were really wise in their choice of punctuation in this verse. Look at, look at the punctuation following that statement no one has ever seen God. There's a semicolon. And what's the purpose of a semicolon? I apologize for the grammar lesson here, but it's important. But a semicolon comes between two closely related but independent clauses. You see, the danger is that we read verse 18 like this. No one has ever seen God, the only God. But when it says no one has has ever seen God, that's its own independent clause. The statement, the only God who was at the Father's right hand, that is a new clause. No one has ever seen God, but then this new clause says the only God who was at the Father's right hand. It's also interesting that that phrase "only" is the same word used back in verse fourteen, "monogeneo," which means "only begotten." Your translation right there might not even say the only God; I might say the only Son, because some translations translate it that way. Because "monogeneo," just about every time the word "monogeneo" is used, it refers to not just the only, but the only Son. In the Book of Hebrews, when it talks about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it refers to Isaac as the only blank. It doesn't say the only son, it just says monogeneo. Because the assumption is, of course, I'm using the word monogeneo, you know what I mean. I mean his son. He didn't, he didn't sacrifice his, you know, his only sheep. He didn't, he wasn't willing to sacrifice his, his only pair of sandals, his monogeneo sandals. No, it was his only, it was clearly about his son. And so here, when when John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that word monogeneo, the assumption is, because he just earlier used the only son, that when he uses monoganeo again, it's talking about Jesus. So this new independent clause says, the only God, the only son, the only begotten, who was at the father's, right. see the context explains it perfectly, doesn't it? It's the son who's at the father's side. It literally means right up against his chest or in his bosom, close to his heart. It says no one has ever seen God but the son of god who's described as the only god the one and only the only begotten the one who was at the father's side he has made him known you see john is finishing down here in verse 14 the very same thing that he introduced in verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god in verse 1 verse 14 at the father's side with god At the Father's side. And the word was God, verse 1. And verse 14, the only God. That's called, in in literary terms, that's called an inclusio. Where you you finish with what you began with. An inclusio. He's, He's restating who Jesus is. Totally equal in essence with the Father. And yet, distinct in personhood. This is what we believe about the Trinity that Christ is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, but Christ is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. Equal in essence, but but distinct in in personhood. The, The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Apostle Paul sums this up so beautifully in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. John 1, 14. No one has ever seen God, but the only God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's the image of the invisible God. What has he made known about the Father? What did Christ make known about the Father? Well, he made known the fact that the Father wants to dwell among us. That's why the Word became flesh. But but what else can we learn from the Incarnation? What else can we learn from the fact that He dwelt among us, like like in a tent, like in a tabernacle among His people? Well, I mentioned how the tabernacle was sort of the the locus of of the glory of God. But I left out a really important detail about what the tabernacle was really all about. The tabernacle was a place of blood and burning, where heaven and earth were reconciled to one another, where sinful human beings came to the entrance of that tabernacle, and before ever even dreaming about entering into the symbolic presence of God, laid their hands on an animal so as to say, what's about to happen to this animal deserves to happen to me, and I'm doing better than I deserve because this animal is dying instead of me. And that that animal would be slaughtered and that animal would be burned. And The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And became the new temple, the new tabernacle. He became not only the new place where God is dwelling among his people. But he became the new place where the ultimate sacrifice would be paid. Where Christ was going to be the place. Where blood was going to be shed once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. I wasn't overstating my case when I said our understanding of this passage. Sets the trajectory for truly understanding what Christianity is all about. What Christmas is all about. What the whole message of the Bible is. If we get this wrong, we get it all wrong. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To make, known the, to make the Father known. Why did he have to become a flesh? Why did he have to become a man? Because humans have sinned against God. And the book of Hebrews tells us animals can't be substitutes for human beings. Humans committed the sin and so the punishment for sin needs to be poured out on a human being. He also needed to become flesh. Because we need his 33 years of sinless perfection, complete obedience to the Father. Because that is what is going to be accounted to us. As Phil mentioned in his rap, God deposited into our account. So that at the cross, our sin went on Christ, but his righteousness came to us. So it was absolutely necessary that he become a man. But it was absolutely necessary that he remain fully God. In that, in that only an eternal being could bear an eternal punishment. That Jesus Christ could in an instant take all of the eternal wrath of God for our sin. And in an instant say, it is finished. So Christ had to become a man. Had to stay a human being. Without, there's the gospel, there's, there's no hope, message of hope in the gospel. If Christ is not a man, then then He is not a, a mediator between God and man. If Christ is not God, then He did not have the capacity to bear the penalty, the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. But Jesus Christ, the one who came from the Father's side, has made the Father known, has shown God's love and God's mercy, does not in any way compromise God's justice and God's holiness. We see those things intersect at the cross. And the whole reason why John is writing this book is so that we would understand what took place at the cross so that we could be reconciled to the Father through his Son. And so loved ones, Christmas is not about giving. It's about receiving. It's about receiving this incredible gift that was given to us. So let's prepare our hearts as we continue to think about what it means to to respond in this season and to reflect rightly. And so Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who is the Light, who is the only begotten Son, who is the Word that became flesh, and who has perfectly represented You as Father who has shown us what the Father's heart is like because He has come from the bosom of the Father. He has come from the Father's side. And God, we praise and adore You. And God, I pray that worship and praise and honor and glory would fill this place as we stand together and as we sing the truth of veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate Deity. Pleased as man, with man, to dwell. To dwell as our tabernacle. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thank you, Lord, for coming down. Thank you, Lord, for being present here among us. For coming to this dark world to be a light. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Fill this place with your worship and praise, we pray.